So this week we'll be looking at chapter 30 of the 1689. So chapter 30 of the 1689 articulates uh, the reformed view of the Lord's Supper. And honestly, the Lord's Supper for me is one of my favorite subjects to, to talk about and to think on. It's just a really encouraging topic. And I was thinking about how we maybe usually think about the Lord's Supper um, and that ordinance in comparison to maybe the other ordinances or other things that the Lord has given for the church to practice. And I was thinking about uh, when I got baptized, the, the one time I got baptized, you should only be baptized once, but the one time that I got baptized, I was thinking about how, uh, how exciting that time was. So myself, uh, some, some brothers actually that go to the church now, uh, back then we were going to another church, my wife was there, and we were all so excited to be baptized. We were thinking about, I mean, just the anticipation, the excitement, the nervousness, and it was just a big deal for us, and it should be a big deal. Uh, but when I think about the Lord's Supper, usually we maybe don't have that same anticipation and that excitement about this other ordinance which, which the Lord has given. That baptism is an ordinance which uh, Christ has given, which brings us into or brings us into uh, identification with the community of the saints. But the Lord's Supper is something that we take every week which is a reminder of that communion that we have with Christ and with each other. And so it is a very important topic. And I think it should be, we should think about it and be excited about it. Every Lord's Day, we should be excited about it. And so I'm hoping to express some of that through this class. Um, I also wanna uh, try and answer a few uh, common questions during the class, questions which are good questions and common questions. Questions like, what is the Lord's Supper? Uh, who instituted it? Where did it come from? Are we still obligated today as Christians to uh, practice the Lord's Supper? Uh, what does the Lord's Supper signify? What is it pointing to? And so I want to try and ask those questions, and I think the confession helpfully answers a lot of those questions as it looks at Scripture and allows Scripture to speak to this topic. And it answers this, those questions in eight helpful paragraphs, which we'll look at today. So let's start by reading paragraph one. Again, handouts are on the back table, unless you have the, the uh, confession book. Um, so anyone who cares to read paragraph one, let me have you read that for us, nice and loud so everybody can hear. So when the Lord Jesus was instituted by him, the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so this paragraph starts by telling us something very important. We're told that the supper is instituted by the Lord. The author of this ordinance is Christ Jesus himself. That's the answer to the question, who instituted the supper? And you'll hear me use this term ordinance, which I've used a few times, even now, up until now. But by ordinance, what I'm referring to is uh, something ordained by Christ, which is a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. 
ordinance, something ordained by Christ, which is a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. So both baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. Baptism is a sign or symbol of being buried with Christ and raised with him. And the Lord's Supper is a sign or symbol of the saints communion with Christ and each other through what? Christ's broken body. So we receive the symbol with the mouth when we eat and we receive the flesh and blood symbolized by faith. It is the, in, in the Lord's Supper, we see the gospel made visible through the breaking of the bread and the taking of the elements, the bread and the wine. Nice. My PowerPoint works this week, so thank you for whoever was praying for this. Uh, Mark 14, 22 to 24. <clears throat> it says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then Paul repeats these same instructions to the church. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. <clears throat> Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way we, he, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's supper or the Lord's death until he comes. So in these two passages, you'll notice uh, two things. The first is this simple uh, principle of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. At the Lord's supper, we should express our thanksgiving for Christ who was crucified. His body is uh, broken for the eternal well-being of our souls and bodies. And you'll probably notice that during communion, the elder who is uh, giving the uh, exhortation, he takes time and he gives thanks formally. And he thanks the Lord for the Lord's Supper. He thanks the Lord for his broken body. Uh, commonly throughout the New Testament, over and over, you see attached to the Lord's Supper, thanksgiving giving God thanks for what he's done in Christ. And I wonder, I mean, during that time, I know it's easy to be uh, distracted. Uh, we get distracted with uh, our phones or we get distracted with children. I know those distractions, trying to pull out snacks and stuff. Uh, it, all these things can become distractions for us as we uh, try to attend to the exhortation of the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Supper itself. And it is important I think for us to stop and to meditate on what's being said because that part of the, the service uh, the minister the elder who's given that or, that exhortation it's not just a part added to the service so that we have a nice order of service or a full liturgy the, the minister is trying to get into our minds what we ought to be thinking about when we think about the Lord's Supper this is what you should be meditating on. This is what you should be thinking about. 
the redemption accomplished for you in the gospel, the wisdom of God in the gospel, all the benefits of the new covenant given to you and applied in the gospel. And so all of this comes through this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So we, we, we stop, we, we sit, we rest ourselves, and we give thought to what's being said so that we are truly encouraged and served by the Lord's Supper. And so that's my encouragement. Let's, let's rest, let's, let's take it easy, let's stop, let's maybe cut back on you know, the, the conversations and the chatting and focus our minds and attention on the Lord's Supper. Not to be legalistic, but to, for our encouragement and our growth. <clears throat> um, where'd I stop at? Okay, so something else you'll notice in these passages that the confession brings out is the answer to should we or are we as Christians today obligated to continue this practice of the Lord's Supper? And we see that through these passages, it is a continued observance. It's a perpetual observance. For how long? The confession tells us until the end of the ages, until the end of the age. Because Christ as head and king of the church has instituted this ordinance, that means that we don't have the authority to change what he's put in place. Christ himself has given this uh, for his church in the churches, and we don't have the authority to change that. Communion should be observed until Christ returns, and it should be observed in his churches. In other words, this ordinance isn't given to uh, the government. It isn't given to uh, the family even. It isn't given to the individual. It is given to the churches. The churches are to practice uh, and this uh, ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And it is in that corporate context when we are gathered together that we should observe the Lord's Supper. So Robert uh, Latham said this uh, in, uh, in regards to the Lord's Supper. He said, breaking bread is a graphic picture of Christ's death on the cross where his body is broken to secure our redemption. When we break bread as churches, we have a graphic portrayal of Christ's death on the cross. <clears throat> there we have in that we have this common or this communion with Christ and each other. So when we are sitting in the sanctuary and we're taking uh, the Lord's Supper, we're about to eat the cracker and drink the juice, you should be able to each uh, true and genuine believer, you should be able to look around and say to yourself, each true believer in this room has sinned this week in many ways, and those sins are in need of atonement. And I have sinned in many ways this week, and my sins are in need of atonement. And that atonement has been made. It has been done. It has been accomplished. So each brother or sister in this room who's in the faith, they have been redeemed in Christ. Their sins have been forgiven. My sins have been forgiven. And we together participate in the Lord's Supper and have applied to us all the benefits of the new covenant. So it is a very, <clears throat> it's very uh, communal. It's, it's something that we look around and we say, 
I'm not uh, suffering alone as a Christian with my sin as I struggle with it. I'm not over here sort of in my cave struggling and the Lord has forgotten me and uh, the Christian, the church has forgotten me. The Lord's Supper each week is a reminder that that's not the case. Every true believer is being sustained by Christ. And so it is for your encouragement. It's for your soul to be served by the Spirit in the Lord's Supper. And it is a great encouragement if we participate uh, worthily, which I'll talk about a little later. And so, again, redemption has been accomplished. Um, It has been applied by the broken body and blood of Christ. And so we can be encouraged and look at each other and know that Christ is sustaining us by the Spirit, just as he's sustaining our brothers and sisters. So I say all that, I give that encouragement, but I haven't really answered what's happening in the Lord's Supper for me to be encouraged. I look around and I should be encouraged, but why? And I want to talk about that specifically. So when we take communion together, what's actually happening? At that table, at the Lord's table, the Spirit is actually serving grace to the weary saint. He's serving grace to the soul of the weary saint. In his book, uh, in in, uh, his uh, Richard Varsella's book, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace, which I strongly recommend you pick up, is excellent on this topic. He says, the blood of the covenant indicates entrance into covenantal relations with God. So when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a covenantal renewal meal, he calls it. It does not bring us into covenant with God. It reminds us that we are in covenant with him through Christ and enhances that covenantal blood. That's why the confession says the supper Uh, for the further engagement. The supper is for the further engagement in and to all the duties which believers owe him and to be a bond and pledge of believers' communion with him and with each other. So something unique and significant is happening in the Lord's Supper as we take it together, okay? All right. Let's jump down to paragraph two. Restoring that Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor is any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the living or the dead. It is only a memorial of one offering Christ made of himself on the cross once for all. It is also a spiritual offering of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. Thus, the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is utterly detestable and detracts from Christ's own sacrifice, which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Okay, thank you. So this paragraph, in this paragraph, the writers of the Confession are making probably, could be argued, but probably the strongest uh, statement against the Roman Catholic Church when it calls the Mass utterly detestable and a distraction from Christ's own sacrifice. So they have pretty strong words against the Mass. But what is Mass? The the Mass within the Roman Catholic uh, system, Mass is a service where Eucharist is practiced. 
Eucharist is the Roman Catholic practice of the Lord's Supper. Um, now, the term Eucharist is actually an appropriate term. <clears throat> because the Lord's Supper involves the giving of thanks, the early uh, post-apostolic church identified it as Eucharist. Uh, and Eucharist comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. So it's not the term Eucharist we should have an issue with. What we should have an issue with and see as problematic and unbiblical is the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper. That's what we should have issue with. And I'll explain why. <clears throat> Roman Catholics understand the Eucharist not uh, only, I'm sorry, Roman Catholics understand that the Eucharist is not only a memorial, but that it is actually an unbloodied sacrifice. Not just a memorial, but an unbloodied sacrifice. In other words, they believe that the bread and wine become Christ's body and blood when the priests speak the words, this is my body. So in essence, these words are taken literally. The words, this is my body, is taken literally. So although the bread still tastes like bread and the wine still tastes like wine, within their doctrine, there is a change in the substance of the bread and the wine. This is the doctrine of transubstantiation. <clears throat> So here's a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's page uh, 381. Don't have it in front of you. I hope not, you shouldn't. But here's a, a little excerpt from it. It says, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. In other words, the same one who was offered on the cross is offered now through the ministry of the priests, that one being Christ. Only the manner of offering is different. So Christ is offered then, he was offered then, he's offered now. The only difference is the manner in which he's offered. Continuing, and since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloodied manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloodied manner, the sacrifice is truly propitiatory. So what's being said here is this. As the bread and the wine change into the substance of Christ's body, the priest offers the sacrifice of Christ again, although in an unbloodied manner, through which the people receive remission of sins. You see the the issue with that, or I hope you start to see or hear the issue with this. In other words, the sacrifice of the mass is propitiatory and it is repeated. Christ is sacrificed again as atonement for sin each time the bread is broken. <clears throat> this is problematic. <laughs> and so how did the reformers respond to this doctrine? Well, in the confession, you'll see it's, it cites in this paragraph, paragraph two, it points to Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, which I think I have here. So let me have someone read this for us. It's a little longer, so <clears throat> you'll read this slide and then the next slide.
<clears throat> okay, thank you. So according to Hebrews, Christ was offered how many times? Once. It's not a trick question. Once. He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So whether bloodied or unbloodied, an idea that Christ is repeatedly offered or sacrificed is unbiblical and a distraction from the one and only atoning sacrifice of Christ. In addition to this, it is really superstition and idolatrous. It's superstition and idolatry. The bread and wine become relics that we worship instead of worshiping Christ. And really, this is our natural inclination as men. We make idols out of anything. We find anything to hold up as Christ to, to serve. Uh, and it really is. It's, it's a distraction, and it is superstition, and it is idolatry. We should not, cannot, must not take Jesus' words, this is my body, literally. That would be a mistake. Reformed, <clears throat> Reformed churches teach that the is and in this is my body must mean represents or symbolizes. This uh, symbolizes my body. This represents my body. If not, <clears throat> this means that, and this is just a lot thinking logically here. If that is not just a representation or a symbol, if Jesus is literally saying, this is my body, that means that when he first said the words to his disciples, this is my body, <clears throat> he's giving them his literal broken body when he's sitting there in his right mind, uh, fine and well. Yet he's giving them his broken body. You see, just logically, it's that that's an issue. So it's, it's an issue in that it distracts and it's unbiblical and it's an issue and it goes against reason and logic. Right. And then it says without the shedding of blood. So if it was a mm. bloodless sacrifice for sin, mm. it also says in verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there, there is, is no forgiveness. Amen. That's a great point. <clears throat> without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. <clears throat> so, so we see, I'm hoping that we're seeing uh, the, the issue with this. And I know we've, many of you have probably thought about this before. But I also want to sort of, <clears throat> as we work through this to get us to maybe think about how the Bible addresses this. <clears throat> well, you had a thought? Yeah, I'll hit you and then I'll, I'll continue. The, repeatedly sacrificing. I've heard that it's not that they're sacrificing over and over again, but they're just presenting the same sacrifice, the same, it's still looking back to the same event on the cross and representing that same sacrifice. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so are we saying that Right, so if it's, I would say that if it is merely a looking back uh, and a remembrance, I would say that that's, that's fine. But even in uh, the, the, cat, the um, catechism of the Catholic Church, they speak of Christ and they speak of this, this sacrifice as not merely a memorial or a looking back, but an unbloodied sacrifice, and they say it's propitiatory. So it can't be a simply a simple looking back if it's propitiatory to look back and say that this has been done let's celebrate it is fine but when we add this this aspect that something is happening in this broken bread that 
as their, their um, catechism says, is for the remission of sins. I would say that, that what's being said <clears throat> and the practice and what they have in their own writings all contradict each other. Um, I, and I, that, that's very problematic. Propitiatory remission of sins all are very problematic. Um, if they were to say, yeah, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a memorial service and we're looking back, then fine, but that's not what I think their own uh, tradition uh, believes. Okay, <clears throat> let me continue here. So in the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> we are not presently participating of the, literal, of the literal breaking of Christ's physical body. And one aspect, the Lord's Supper does call us to look back because it's connected to the past. So looking back is an aspect of the Lord's Supper, and, and it should be. <clears throat> uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So communion has a memorial element to it, just like the Passover in, uh, of the Old Testament. It has something to do with the past, rightly so. It looks back to redemption accomplished. So in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate something that has already happened. We are reminded of that redemption that has been won by Christ for us. So the supper is a, in one sense, a memorial ordinance that also has present benefits and a future anticipation, which I'll talk about. We look back, we benefit presently, and we also look forward with a future anticipation that we will eat with the Lord again. Um, okay. That's all I have for paragraph two. Let's jump down to paragraph three. We have eight paragraphs today, so um, I'm not gonna try and get through all of them. If we do, we do. If we don't, we don't. But we'll just go at a regular pace and, um, try and I'll try and get through as much as I can. So let's read paragraph three. Thank you. So the celebration of the Lord's Supper has three main activities. What are they? Prayer, breaking the bread, or taking the bread and taking the cup. Uh, let me have someone read Luke 22, 19 and 20 for us. <laughs> Don't you do it, Pito. <laughs> That wasn't me, Rod. That wasn't <laughs> <laughs> Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay. Thank you, Pito. <clears throat> Brother. <laughs> um, okay, so Luke 22, along with Matthew 26, Mark 14, and 1 Corinthians 11 all includes prayer or giving thanks as part of the Lord's Supper. So I talked about that a little bit earlier. And who are the ones that have been appointed to pray and bless the elements? His ministers. These appointed ministers actually represent Christ as they pray and bless the bread and wine. 
Although there is no change in the substance of the bread and wine after the blessing, the bread and wine become holy because of what they symbolize. So here at Faith Baptist Church, we eat crackers and drink juice. That's in my notes. I didn't just say that because you know said. <laughs> we eat crackers and we drink grape juice. <laughs> now, when we go to the store to purchase the Wojcicki grape juice, whoever it is, what that person, when that person walks down aisle 13 at Publix and he takes that juice off the shelf, is that juice holy or sacred? No, it's not. It's just a bottle of grape juice. <laughs> but during the worship service, when the elder prays and we take the cup, the juice, and we drink it during the Lord's Supper, it is at that moment distinct. It is set apart for holy use. So it has moved from common or ordinary use to holy or consecrated use. At that moment, the elements become signs and symbols of a spiritual reality that the believer takes a hold of, how? By faith. He takes a hold of this by faith. Because the supper is a picture of the redemption accomplished by Christ, it should never be taken apart from the proclamation of that redemption. In other words, <clears throat> the eating of the Lord's Supper should always be accompanied by the preaching of the gospel. Why? Because that's what it's pointing to. That's what it symbolizes. Okay? <clears throat> so those go hand in hand. Um, now I'm going to read Article 35 of the Belgic Confession. I've been reading through uh, the Belgic Confession, different portions this week. And man, it is excellent. I love it. I, want to I wanted to read a lot more of it, but I'm just going to read a little, a little piece of it. So Article 35 of the Belgic Confession uh, on uh, the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It says this, <clears throat> to represent to us this spiritual and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted an earthly and visible bread as the sacrament of his body and wine as the sacrament of his blood. He did this to testify to us that just as truly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hands and eat and drink it with our mouths by which our life is then sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and blood of Christ, our only Savior. We receive these, they qualify this, we receive these by faith, which is the hand and the mouth of our souls. Okay? So we're not articulating the same thing as the Roman Catholic Church and the practice of Eucharist and the Mass. These are two uh, different things, different ideas, different principles and practices. Okay, let's jump down to, to number four. Paragraph four. Okay, thank you. So this is a short and straightforward paragraph. It's simply uh, a list of practices that you would see in the Roman Catholic Mass. Denying the cup to the people or its participants, worshiping the elements or lifting them up and carrying them around are all contrary to the nature of the Lord's Supper. So you just don't see those, uh, that practice commanded in scripture. Matter of fact, the Bible actually explicitly forbids 
these practices in Exodus. But first, uh, another quote from the uh, uh, Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> it says this, in the liturgy of the mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting and bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. So here's the logic. If Christ is in the bread or wafer, then the bread should be adored. Why? Because the bread and Christ are literally synonymous. What the Roman Catholic Church does in their worship is idolatry because it does not come from scripture. Not only because it doesn't come from scripture, but it comes from the wisdom of men. It ends up being superstitious sacramentalism. This is why this paragraph references Exodus 20. So Exodus 20 is about the Ten Commandments. What does that have to do with this? Let, let me read Exodus 20, uh, verse four to five. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So you see why the reformer saw this as an appropriate passage. When the bread and wine are treated as if they have accomplished redemption for you, even if you don't believe that, when you treat them as if they have, this is a problem. This really is superstitious, idolatrous, and it ends up being will worship. Christ is giving us this ordinance and it is meant to be an ordinance that is a celebration as a reminder of what Christ has accomplished. If worship is in any way directed to anything apart from Christ, it should be rejected and repented of. Okay, short paragraph, short explanation. Let's jump to paragraph five. The outward elements in this ordinance properly set apart for the use ordained by Christ such a relationship to Christ crucified that they are sometimes called truly though figuratively by the names of the things they represent that is the body and blood of Christ however in substance and nature they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before okay so I, I love this chapter they just they think through these things and explain them uh, and paragraph 5 does exactly that so it gets into what we just sort of left off of left off in paragraph 4 so what's being said here is that the bread and, wine, bread and wine remain to be what they actually are, bread and wine. What changes is not their substance. They are still bread and wine, but they become representations of the thing they symbolize. They don't become the thing they symbolize. They become representations of the thing that they symbolize. This type of figurative language is not uncommon to the New Testament. For instance, uh, in John 10, Jesus says, I am a door. Some translations read, I am a gate. So no one would look at that and argue, and I don't think no logical or sane person would look at that and argue that Jesus is literally a three foot by eight foot wooden piece of wood or however tall a door is. You just, that, that's not logical thinking. <clears throat> no one would say that Jesus is actually a door. That is figurative language used, uh, spoken of Christ, that gives us a deeper understanding of Christ as a protector of his people. 
a door keeps things in and it keeps things out. So we have to read it in the language that is uh, appropriate for the context. So when the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread becomes the body of our Lord uh, after the priests say the words, this is my body, that should be rejected. And that is, uh, and this is the doctrine that actually uh, paragraph six is rejecting and it explains it. So let's jump to paragraph six. So these four, five, and six are all really tied together um, in, this, in this chapter. So let's read six and then we'll continue to sort of walk through transubstantiation. Got it. Thank you. So how the confession presents the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is actually accurate in its accordance to their own words. So the writers of the confession were not just being theologically picky. They saw this doctrine as hostile because it was contrary to scripture and it was a distraction from Christ. And so they took time to address it. The practice worships and this transubstantiation, this practice, it worships the creature, the elements, along with the creator, and that's what makes it idolatrous. Worshiping anything alongside the creator is a problem. To say that the bread or wine becomes the body of Christ is a literalistic interpretation. In the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back as we remember the redemption accomplished, we also look forward as we anticipate the day when we will celebrate the Lord's Supper with Christ again in body and spirit. But this doctrine of transubstantiation claims that Christ is there in body and spirit. So the question is, where is Christ's uh, human nature right now? Where is it right now? It's in heaven. It's at the right hand of the Father. That's where his body is. And according to uh, Acts uh, 3, George, you are correct. It is in heaven. Speaking of Christ, it says, of whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So to say that Christ is present and the bread and wine is a contradiction of scripture. This paragraph says that this doctrine is not only contrary to scripture, but that it also contradicts human reason. How? The doctrine says that Christ is everywhere present during the Eucharist sacrifices. Everywhere present uh, in his divine and human nature. So when the host um, is, is broken and given, let's say uh, the bread is, just use this room as an example, an illustration of this. If I take bread and I break it, and I break it into 60 different pieces, and I give it to everyone in the room, and I say, uh, Farron, in your piece, Christ is there in his human nature and in his divine nature. It's in Farron's piece. And then I look over here and I say, Robert, he's there in your piece too. Fully there, body, 
uh, spirit, divine and human nature. He's in your peace. He's in Kristen's peace. He's in Ron's peace. He's in Dan's peace. And he's in George's peace. He's in, he's in all of your pieces, body, divine, human nature, divine nature. The, the question is, is that logical? Is it possible? Is it possible for the physical body of Christ to be in all these different pieces and that be a, a logical explanation of uh, the, the broken pieces and, and the broken body of Christ? No, it's, it's illogical. It, it's an impossibility. Uh, and that's why the, this paragraph says that it's not only contrary to scripture, but it's contrary to logic and, and reason. Uh, Christ's body is in, at the right hand of uh, the Father in heaven. His uh, divine nature and his divine nature is God. Christ can be everywhere, but his physical body and his divine, his human nature is located in heaven. That shows that the Catholic Church is above the Word of God. Absolutely, and that you see that practice uh, over and over in the Roman Catholic Church because there's an authority that is higher than the Scripture or sets right beside Scripture, which is the same issue. Um, and that's, I think, another one of them. So the doctrine of transubstantiation, transubstantiation, did I say that right, means that Christ's physical body can be everywhere at once. And again, this is an impossibility. This is why it contradicts reason. Remember that Christ, even right now, is in heaven, still in his human nature, which he will actually have forever. He's in his human nature, which he will have forever. Christ in his divine nature as God can be everywhere at once, but his physical glorified body is located in heaven. This is where his physical body resides, and this is where it will reside until he returns. Okay? That's what uh, the scripture says, and we confess, which is, uh, again, in contradiction to the uh, Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> Thank you, love. <laughs> okay, so I think that no, actually, we have ten minutes. Not bad, good time. Okay, I've got like four more pages. I can't do it. So um, let's jump down to paragraph seven, and we'll we'll end with talking about who should take the Lord's Supper. Okay, and I'll maybe just summarize eight at the end of seven. So read paragraph. Let me have someone read paragraph seven for us. Thank you. So we'll, we'll end with this paragraph. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do this in remembrance of Christ. We also participate in communion with Christ and experience the present benefits of redemption accomplished. But as Christ said, we will also drink with his people, with him and his people in the future. So there's, a, there's an eschatological feast that will take place in the new heavens and the new earth. But this chapter focuses on the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. So the Holy Spirit does something unique in the souls of believers when the local church takes the Lord's Supper. I mentioned Richard Barcella's book, uh, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace, and I'll mention it again. I'm going to quote from it here. 
He says, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace through which Christ is present by his divine nature and through which the Holy Spirit nourishes the souls of believers with the benefits wrought for us in Christ's human nature, which is now glorified and is, at, and is in heaven at the right hand of God. So uh, we benefit, we are served by the Spirit, uh, what's been accomplished by Christ and his divine and human nature. So the means of grace are not meant to communicate grace that regenerates um, or saves, but grace that sanctifies. <clears throat> so faith is a gift given by the Holy Spirit in the, to the hearts of believers. But that same spirit who gives that faith also works through appointed means to increase and strengthen that faith. So the supper is a means through which believers receive spiritual nourishment and grow in Christ. So these are present benefits to the soul of the Christian when they participate in the supper because there is present participation with Christ and the supper. So it's more than a memorial. It's more than just a looking back and saying, something happened, this is what we celebrate. But there's actually something happening presently. It's a present participation with the Lord and the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to make a case for that, and then I'll end in four minutes. Let's see. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the King James Version translates participation or communion in other translations um, as, um, I'm sorry, participation or communion, which is why we call the Lord's Supper. So this participation has been translated as communion, which is why we call it communion sometimes. But in this context, in this verse, Paul is warning some within the church at Corinth not to participate in idolatry. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 to 21, Paul warns the church that participating in pagan sacrifice, uh, pagan sacrificial meals is a form of idolatry. He says, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What our Bibles translates as sharing or participants or communion is actually the Greek word uh, koinonia. And so Anthony Thistleton, which is an English theologian who focuses on her hermeneutics, he says that normally this word Participation, or uh, koinonia, means communal participation and that of which all participants are shareholders or are accorded a common share. So, Paul makes an argument for the present communion of the saints with the Lord and the supper by warning the church of their present communion with demons and food offered to idols. Now, if Paul is talking about a present communion with the blood and body of Christ, and Christ is living and exalted at the right hand of God, then the present benefits of Christ must be the benefits of the risen Christ. Those present benefits that we receive now must be the benefits earned by us 
uh, earned for us by Christ who is at the right hand of God. And that's what the spirit is serving to the soul of the saint. Present benefits from a risen Christ. So the communion must be with the present benefits earned by his broken body and shed blood because his body is no longer broken and his blood is no longer being shed. The believer is united to Christ and comes to communion at the Lord's table and we are guests served by Christ and we're served fresh grace by the Spirit as we partake of the Lord's Supper. So when we go in and we sit and uh, the elder prays and gives thanks and the elements are handed out, when you have the cup in your hand and you have the cracker in your hand, we take that cracker and we drink that cup and something unique is happening in the soul of the saint as the spirit applies those benefits of Christ to us. It's not to regenerate you. It's not to save you at that moment as if taking the element saves you. It, you're served grace anew, afresh. And it's not anything um, superstitious or even uh, extremely uh, mysterious. Like I mentioned before, you look around and you remember that all of these saints are suffering along with me. Um, Christ is with them as he is with me. He has not forsaken them. He has not forsaken me. We take the Lord's Supper together. We are encouraged together. Um, we look back and remember Christ together. We look forward and say every true believer in this room will literally eat bread and drink wine with the Lord again in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's why it's a present participation. Um, and that's why it's the communion of the saints. That's why there's unity um, when the saints take the Lord's Supper together. So remember that when we take the Lord's Supper. Remember that when we are uh, participating in the Lord's Supper together. It is Christ being glorified as you are sustained by the Spirit and receive grace anew, grace afresh in the Lord's Supper. Okay? Okay. Norm. Okay. So I know that that's not uh, great, but it doesn't seem terribly. Yeah, to to have someone <clears throat> to want to identify uh, someone as a true believer, 
um, we do things here. When, when we uh, bring people, admit people to membership, uh, they go through membership class, they sit with the elders and they ask questions and they articulate uh, their faith. And what the elders are looking for, I think, is what has the Bible uh, given us to look for uh, and, in a sense, examine as we hear someone's profession of faith, as we identify them? Because we, this, and, and that, that's a good point, even the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is given to the church, now I would disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, but just talking about um, Protestant Orthodox teaching. Even as we think about the Lord's uh, Supper given to the church, that idea assumes that the church has a responsibility to discern who ought to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. And we do the same thing in membership. Um, the Lord's Supper given to the church means that uh, the minister <clears throat> or the church ought to give thought to, and we didn't get to get a chance to talk about that, to give thought to if someone is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy or an unworthy manner. And they do that with the prescription of the word. And so the Bible tells us what we ought to look for. Uh, different things that we ask sort of help us to get to, okay, is this person genuinely in the faith? Um, are they taking the Lord's Supper? Or are they not maybe truly saved, but think that they're saved? Um, and asking questions helps us to discern those things. Now, I, I, working through, and I'm not sure you said he, he uh, they work through creeds and they ask them to articulate certain things concerning the articles of faith or creeds and confessions. Okay. Yeah, so just saying it is definitely a problem. <laughs> just saying that you, uh, re repeating a, an article or a confession, of course, doesn't admit one into the body of Christ. That's a, a very big issue with that, obviously, uh, because that assumes that repeating, it, it's like repeating a prayer. Well, so Pray this prayer after me. That I'm sorry? They're trying to police who does communion via membership. Well, well, I think the church should, <laughs> in a sense, police who takes communion. The, the church should uh, give thought to discern who should be admitted to the table because the Bible says, and again, I didn't get to get to this, but the Bible says that some can take it in an unworthy manner. And you take it in an unworthy manner by not discerning the body and the blood of Christ which looks like on one side, coming to the table, taking the Lord's Supper, as if you are have communion with Christ by continually practicing the sins that, that Christ died for, that Christ died for, on one end. On the other end, you can take it in an unworthy manner by just simply not discerning the Lord's table. In other words, we approach the table as if it's ordinary or as if it's common. So you approach it uh, glibly, you approach it as if uh, this isn't a uh, uniquely uh, holy time. And the Bible says some have been judged for that. Some got sick, some died. So it is serious. Um, and I think that even in as Reformed Baptists, we ought to, or the, the ministers ought to give thought to and police and fence the table to some who would take it in an unworthy manner for the purification of the church and for the purification of the holy ordinance of the supper. Okay. Go ahead. I'll, you can say your comment, then we got to close out. <clears throat> I think he was saying more the like in the Catholic Church, like you all line up in the three section to get you, you know, your piece and then you file around and go back to your seat. Yeah. And we, we don't really do that. I mean, there's always a warning given. Sure. You know, make sure that you know your heart, make sure you're in the Lord. Sure. And you're, you know, eating 
<clears throat> right. Right. But as Baptists and Christians, we don't actually police it in that way. You refuse it to someone, you just warn them, and then yeah. it's passed around and it's, right. you know, it's yeah. not always <clears throat> in a yeah. physical sense, it's just a warning to their soul. Right, right. And that's different from the Catholics. Right. Okay, yeah. That's a great one. Yeah? yeah? I was looking at four beginning where it says, and then I have a couple of people today. So oh, right, you right. Take this unless you are a member of the Catholic uh, hmm. like you're a member of the Catholic faith. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's a great point. I guess I <laughs> I just wanted to finish the last two paragraphs. <laughs> but it's a great point. But I have to stop now. Um.